if you obey sin as a pattern of life, then sin is your master and you're not a believer. But if you obey God as a pattern of life, then God is your master and you are a believer. A slave obeys his master and that shows exactly whose slave he is, by whom he obeys. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new 10-part series titled, Whose Slave Are You? Have you ever thought about your relationship to sin? Well, that is exactly what our series in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23 is all about. The Apostle Paul claims that every single person relates to sin in one of two ways. You are either under the law or under grace. But what does that mean? Well, to be under the law means that you're trying to justify yourself before God. To be under grace means you acknowledge your complete dependence on the work of Jesus Christ alone as the basis of your being made right with God. And Tom will examine the way that your relationship to sin, whether through the law or through grace, will determine the ultimate outcome of your soul, both on earth and in eternity. But before we begin today, here's Tom with an opening thought about this new series. Tom? You know, I think sometimes we're confused because of how our translators, who took the Bible from its original languages into our own English language, chose to translate one particular Greek word. That Greek word is the word doulos, and it's often translated as servant, when in reality the word means slave. And this word doulos and its plural form, slaves, occurs often in the text we're going to study together because it's a great word to describe the spiritual reality of every person. We are all slaves, either to sin or to Christ. And that's the lesson that this text has to teach us. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible right now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. I want to begin today by reminding you of the context of where we are, by reminding you of the major flow of Paul's argument so far in the book of Romans. Now, you'll remember that after a brief introduction, 17 verses at the beginning of this letter, then he comes immediately the first major section, which we call the Gospel Explained. From chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of chapter 4, Paul lays out the Gospel. And of course, at its heart, the Gospel is about justification by faith alone. He explains the need for that. He explains exactly how that's been accomplished and how it's received by faith alone. We're in the second major section of this letter, and that is in chapters 5 through 8, and I've entitled that, The Gospel Experienced. And the goal of this section, I believe, the entire section, is not to focus on sanctification, although, as we're seeing, it, it does deal with the issue of sanctification, but rather to give us security as true believers in the justification that's ours in Christ. This entire section both begins and ends with that wonderful assurance. And I think everything in between is about that as well. Now, so far, we've looked at 
chapter 5 and part of chapter 6. Let me just remind you of the flow of Paul's thought here. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, as he develops the security that we have in Christ, he begins with the immediate benefits that are ours because of justification. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, and he launches into this list of benefits that are ours. The middle of chapter 5, we get to what is really one of the most difficult theological sections of this letter. Beginning in verse 12 and running down through the end of chapter 5, he explains the legal basis for justification. How can a just God, a just judge, declare wicked people to be righteous? And there's only one answer to that. That's because We once were in Adam. He was our official legal representative, but God in grace has given us a new official legal representative, Jesus Christ, and because of what he does, we get all of the credit. It is a legal, there is a legal basis for justification, and that's God appointed Christ as our second Adam, as our representative, and so he can declare us just because Christ is just. Now, What Paul says at the end of chapter 5, specifically in verses 20 and 21, raises two crucial questions. We've noted this. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5, Paul raises this question, does the grace that comes in justification encourage us to sin? Paul answers that question in chapter 6. I'll come back to that in a moment. The second question that he raises at the end of chapter 5 is, what is the purpose of the law? What purpose does the law serve? Paul answers that question in chapter 7. Now, as he answers these two huge questions in chapters 6 and 7, Paul profoundly deepens our understanding of our security in Jesus Christ. So let me remind you of where we are in chapter 6, as Paul answers the question, does grace, the grace that comes in justification, cause us or encourage us to sin? The theme of chapter 6 is this, the believer's new relationship to sin. That's the entire chapter, the believer's new relationship to sin. He wants to deal with this question. We've outlined the chapter like this. The first half of the chapter is making one basic point. We are no longer slaves of sin. That's our new relationship to sin. We're no longer slaves. He develops that. You'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 6, he raises question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In verse 2, Paul gives a summary answer. He says, absolutely not. Why? Because we died to sin. And then he spends the rest of the first half of the chapter explaining what that means, that we died to sin. And beginning in the second half of chapter 6, Paul comes to a second point he wants to make about our new relationship to sin. In the second half of the chapter, beginning at verse 15 and running down through verse 23, Paul makes the opposite point to the point he made in the first half. And that is, not only are we no longer slaves of sin, but we are now slaves of God and righteousness. We are now slaves of God and of righteousness. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. 
What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, having read that, I want to make two general observations before we look at it more specifically. Obviously, you see that the major image that Paul uses in that paragraph is the image of slavery. That factors in importantly, and we'll deal with that in a few moments. But he uses that image, secondly, a second general observation we can make is he uses that image to make a sharp contrast between our slavery before Christ and after Christ. Notice how he does this. Verse 17, you were, you became. Verse 18, having been freed, you became. Verse 19, you presented in the past, so now present. And then verse 21, you then, you now. You see the point he's trying to make. Paul uses this slavery imagery to illustrate the controlling influences that were a part of our life before Christ and after Christ. Understanding this is absolutely foundational. Just as we discovered in the first half of Romans 6, you cannot deal with the sin in your life if you don't understand these foundational things. This is who you are in Jesus Christ, and this is the foundation from which we grow in holiness. Now, the main point of this paragraph, then, we could put like this. True Christians never take sin lightly because they are no longer slaves of sin, but of God and of righteousness. So he's still talking then in this paragraph about the believer's new relationship to sin, but with a slightly different emphasis than in the first half of the chapter. Now let me give you the the basic outline of this second half. First of all, there's a flawed conclusion in verses 15 and 16. He presents a flawed conclusion that perhaps some opponents of the gospel, or perhaps even some professing Christians, had come to about the believer's relationship to sin. He presents it and he answers it in sweeping general terms. Then in verses 17 and 18, he provides us with 
information about the radical change that happened to us. He's really talking in those two verses about our conversion. This is what happened when you were converted. There was a radical change in your relationship to sin. Verse 19, he applies it. The practical ramification of the believer's relationship to sin, what you ought to do in light of this reality. This is really the only command in this section. And then in verses 20 to 23, he steps back and he says, let me describe for you the eternal consequences of your relationship to sin. Based on all I've described, if your relationship to sin is that of a believer, then it means eternal life. If your relationship to sin is still that of slavery to sin, it means death. Now let's unpack then with that basic understanding of the flow, let's unpack what the Spirit's teaching in these verses. Paul begins in verses 15 and 16 with a flawed conclusion about the believer's relationship to sin. Notice how the conclusion begins in verse 15. What then? He's saying, what should we conclude? Now what's the context for that question? Go back to the end of verse 14. He says, for sin shall not be master over you. That's not, a, that's not a command. That's a statement of fact. That's a reality. The slavery of sin has been broken for believers. Sin shall not be master over you, and here's why. For you are not under law, but under grace. Everyone on the planet is either under law or under grace. But what does that mean? Well, to be under law means you are desperately trying to earn your own standing before God by keeping God's law. You are trying to be justified by your own efforts. That's under law. You're trying to establish your own righteousness on the basis of your own efforts, your own goodness, your own merit. But of course, as we've already discovered in this book, that approach never works. It's hopeless. It's hopeless because the law can never deliver us from the guilt of sin nor the power of sin. It can't justify anyone. In fact, chapter 3, verse 20 says it's by the law that we get the knowledge of sin. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says no one's justified by the law. In fact, the law condemns. Think about this. The law of God condemns every person who doesn't keep it perfectly. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 says, for as many as are of the works of the law, they are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So if you don't keep every command, you're cursed. That's what the law does. It curses you That's what it means to be under the law. It means you're trying on your own efforts to earn God's acceptance. And it's hopeless. It's impossible. Let's look at the other side of this. The rest of us are under grace. To be under grace means that you are seeking to be accepted with God, not based on your own efforts or your own righteousness, but on the basis of His Grace alone, His goodness to those who deserve exactly the opposite. It is to acknowledge your utter dependence on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross alone as the basis 
of your being made right with God. Here's how Paul puts it in chapter 3, verse 24. He says, being justified, being declared right with God, being made right with God by His grace as a free gift. As a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, through the work of Jesus Christ. So the believer then is no longer under law in the sense that he's still seeking to be made right with God by the law. But rather, he's under grace. That's what Paul says in verse 14. And that invites the question of verse 15. Look at what he says. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Now, that's very similar to the question Paul raised back in verse 1. Notice what he says there. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? What I want you to see is the reason I've divided the chapter where I have at verse 15 is these two questions really provide the framework for this chapter. Both of these questions deal with the same theme, the believer's relationship to sin. But there is one key difference between the questions in verse 1 and verse 15. Do you see it? The excuse for sin is different. In verse 1, are we to sin in order that grace may increase? Do we actually get more grace by sinning more? And then in verse 15, there's a different excuse. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Because we've been justified by grace, declared right with God, we are good for eternity. Is sin a little thing? doesn't really matter. In both cases, the attitude towards sin is the same. Verse 1 says, are we to, look how he puts it, are we to continue in sin? The Greek word translated continue means to remain, to continue or to persist in an activity, to persevere in a continuing habit and pattern of sin. Is that okay? Is it okay for Christians to persist in, to continue in, to persevere in a continuing pattern and habit of sin? This is the person who claims to be a Christian but refuses to turn from a life of sin. Verse 15, look at the question there. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Again, this is almost certainly referring to an ongoing pattern of sin, a continuing state of sin, a settled life of sin. Christians sin, right? But no Christian lives in a continuing, lifelong, settled pattern of sin. This is the flippant attitude that takes sin lightly. Since I'm saved by grace, sin doesn't really matter. Listen to the Apostle John. John understood grace, but here's what he says in 1 John chapter 3. Verses 8 and 9, the one who practices sin, and again, he's talking about who's engaged in the practice, the pattern, the habit of sin. This is what marks his life, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one, listen to that, No one who is born of God, no one who has experienced the new birth, practices sin. Again, the idea isn't that we don't commit sin. The idea is true Christians don't live in an ongoing, relentless pattern of sin. Why? Because the seed of God abides in him. And he can't sin in that way because he's a new creature. 
He's been born of God. So how does Paul respond to this person? This person in verse 1 and verse 15 who claims to be a Christian but displays an attitude that takes sin lightly because he's no longer under law but under grace. Look at Paul's response in verse 15, his correction. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Paul's response to a professing Christian who doesn't take sin seriously and who claims that he can continue to live in a pattern of sin because he's under grace is one of moral revulsion and outrage. That's what that expression means. May it never be. Literally, may it never happen. This is unthinkable, Paul says, that a Christian would take sin lightly because he's under grace. Then, as Paul did in the first half of this chapter, he lays out in verse 16 a general principle that he will spend the rest of the paragraph developing. Let's look at the general principle in verse 16. Just start with those words, do you not know? Those are familiar words if you're a student of Scripture. Paul loves that expression. I have to tell you, as a preacher, I find great comfort in the fact that Paul has these phrases, these expressions that he resorts to when he's trying to express the truth that grips his heart. You know, expressions like, do you not know, or may it never be. There are many others. I'm, I'm encouraged by that because I know I do the same thing, and so does every teacher you find yourself wanting to communicate a truth and you go back to a way that it's gripped your mind, it's gripped your soul. I know you're probably amused at times when I do that, perhaps even completing my sentences before I do in your mind. Paul did this, so it's okay. Now, notice, <laughs> notice Paul loves this expression, do you not know? Why? Because it was his way to remind his readers of something that was common knowledge. Most of the time, he deals with things when he asks that question that are common knowledge to all Christians, that they've learned as part of the gospel, the rudimentary facts of the truth of the Christian faith. But here in verse 16, it's a little different because the question that he asks has to do with common knowledge, not merely to Christians, but to all of those who lived in the first century in the Roman Empire. Notice the question he asks, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey. Paul intentionally borrows the language of Roman slavery throughout this paragraph. Now, let me just say, and we'll talk about this more when I get there, but in verse 19, he doesn't apologize for doing it, but he does admit that it's not a perfect illustration and that it has some drawbacks. It can be misunderstood. Nevertheless, this concept of slavery powerfully emphasizes the point he wants to make, which is freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin. Because all you did at conversion was change one Lord for another Lord. That's why the image of slavery works. Paul wants to show how ridiculous it is to call yourself a Christian and to continue to take sin lightly, and to live in sin. So let's look at verse 16. Really key verse. This is where he lays out the general principle and principles that he will develop throughout the rest of this paragraph. Foundational. Let's look at these key foundational propositions that we have to understand to get the rest of this passage. 
Proposition number one. Paul says in verse 16, if you present yourself as a slave to something or someone, you are a slave. If you present yourself as a slave to something or someone, you are a slave. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, when you present, the Greek tense there has this idea, when you are habitually presenting yourself to something or someone, that is, you're handing yourself over, uh, another sense of this word is when you're putting yourself at someone else's disposal, you are a slave of that thing or that person. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Whose Slave Are You?, Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.